Shadowcastaudio.com presents The Masters of Horror, the anthology. Welcome to a world hidden behind the blinds of reality, a landscape waiting to be molded into a thing of pain and torture. This anthology is not for the faint-hearted. The ideas, themes, and disturbing images portrayed within will send your brain into overdrive on the road to madness. This book is guaranteed to rob you of sleep at night and bring you the nightmares you've most feared. You've been warned. Jason Warden is a father, a husband, and a writer. He's also the founder and editor of the Shadowcast Audio Anthology, of which you are listening to now. This was my very first published story, Once Seen. If you like it, and you would like to hear more, or see more, read more, you can visit my website at www.jasonwarden.com. There you can get a full list of my credits, as it were, and uh, also a new flash fiction story every week. So uh, I look forward to, uh, to hearing from you. This story is read by the incomparable Morgan Scorpion, who's well known for her readings of Lovecraftian fiction. Uh, she also read Nyarlathotep for me uh, late last year as part of a flash fiction double episode. So without further ado, here is Once Seen by Jason Warden. For a time in my life, I was trapped within the walls of my own house. Not by any outside force, but by my own inability to deal with the outside world. It seems to me my reasons were not even intentional. No phobias spurred me on, nor did I feel uncomfortable around people or the outside in general. I simply wanted to live life on my own terms. The inheritance allowed me the privilege. I had always been envious of those who had a knack for art. Since earliest childhood I had been drawn to art. If my subject was in front of me, I did a fair enough job, but quite simply my mind's eye could never seem to tell my hands about the things that were not visible. My imagination seemed to have a short in it when it came to putting the pencil to paper. That is, until I found the face in the wall. After the reading of the will, I moved back in and set up my easel and supplies in the family room. Mother's rocker, where she had knitted so many old rags, I moved to her room. I left father's chair. It was old but comfortable and broke in like a familiar lover. I often sat and looked out on the street to search for inspiration. I did not own a TV and only occasionally tuned in the radio to hear weather updates. Even within the quiet, peaceful room, too often I found distractions to be the norm rather than the exception. At times I would sit down with a cigarette and watch pedestrians on the sidewalks, each of them going about their daily lives, and I would wonder about where they were headed, what dreams they had, and what their future held. I went days upon days without making a mark on canvas, and soon found myself doing nothing more than filling ashtrays and making up stories for these people on the street. The windowless basement seemed to be the surest way to force my creativity out. I would either find success or failure down there. The walls were covered in a dark wood panelling, but the floor remained completely neglected. It was still just a concrete pad, but for my purposes I thought it perfect, 
there were no distractions. Failure or success would be a product of my own making. The thought scared me. My easel and supplies were set up in the middle of the room. The stool was hard and unrelenting beneath me. Rarely have I felt as uncomfortable as I did in the first few hours of being in that place. Although the space was large, the walls seemed to close in. It began to feel claustrophobic, and every so often I had to get up just to assure myself of the size of the room. Eventually, I moved my supplies from the centre of the room to the corner, where I could look over my shoulder at the cavernous emptiness behind. Even as I did so, it felt right. The walls pulled away, and all at once, images of my masterpieces raced through my mind. I simply could not wait to get started. The lighting was better, richer, and I knew the colours, when eventually my work was ready for them, would explode on the canvas. I decided at the last minute to bring a lamp down from the family room. When I got back and plugged the lamp in, and found the space to be even better than it first seemed. The additional lighting helped not only the workspace, but also the overall feel of the room. Finally, at ease within my sanctuary, I sat down in front of the easel and found everything that had been pushing to get out was gone. The images, there only minutes before, had disappeared. I sat looking blankly at the canvas, my thoughts wandering, my concentration shattered. I closed my eyes, willing away the unproductive thoughts that came, and tried to harness those images that had flashed through my head. Nothing. It was as if my mind had been washed blank. I looked about the room, scanned the walls and ceiling. Whatever had set my previously uninspired mind at work was here. I knew if I could somehow get started, the rest would be a mere matter of being absorbed in the work. My masterpiece continued to elude me, so that even my conviction to hone my craft began to fade. I thought of those people outside again, their stories untold, and wished they would just leave me alone, but my mind continued to race around them like an addict after his fix. The frustration of knowing I would never be any closer to my goal unless something changed, combined with my own inability to find the needed change, threatened to unhinge me. When finally, after I had sat for what seemed like an age, I closed my mind and an image came. It was not the one I wanted to see. The eyes of my mother gazed upon me as I stood at the front window. She was standing on the sidewalk across the street. Her flesh was charred, black, and cracking open from the fire that had taken her. But it did not touch her eyes. They bore into me. I tried to open my own eyes, to release the image but found they would not or could not open, as if something wanted me to see her, to see the disappointment and hate in her eyes. As she staggered forward, I cringed back and found I was trapped. The walls behind me had closed in, and my only means of escape were to jump through the window toward her. She shambled rather than walked. Both legs were burned black, and her torso was covered in a grey slime that I assumed were from the extinguishers the firemen had used. She held her hands over her abdomen, attempting to hold in the green and red fluid that ran over her burnt hands. I remembered them at the funeral, the blackness of those hands showing through the white gloves the mortician had put on her before the visitation. 
I could understand the disappointment in her eyes, even the hatred. I had never lived up to my own expectations, much less those of my mother and father. I could even understand her coming back. Somehow I always knew she would. The fire was all my fault, after all. If I'd only stayed for dinner, it never would have happened. What I could not understand were the grisly tentacles she dragged behind her. They lashed and whipped around her more fervently the closer she came to the window, as if seeing me excited them. As she drew near, I saw each ended in a single razor-edged claw, which rang each time it struck the asphalt. I watched helpless as she shambled across the street, dragging her mutated body toward the window. I pushed against the wall, and as desperation finally set in, I jumped back as one of the razors tore up a large chunk of earth in front of the window. I watched it sail through the air, and screamed as it landed at the feet of my father. He was slumped, balanced precariously on his bent legs, as I would imagine a frog would be if standing upright. His jerky off-balance motions seemed gangly until he jumped and crossed what had to be fifteen feet with a single bound. I fell back and knew no more. I came awake, my head throbbing with the beat of my heart. I felt around on the back of my skull and found a knot already half-formed. I had fallen off the stool. The bare concrete pad had done little to break my fall. The knot was sore to the touch, but I found it a small price to pay for release from the... dream? What else could I call it? Although I had not intended to go to sleep, the question begged an answer. What could I call it, if not a dream? I got back on the stool, half persuaded it had only been a dream. I tried once more to conjure the things I had seen that had so inspired me before. I received the equivalent of static from very far down on the AM band. Eventually, I was reduced to tears by the dream and my own inability. Anger and frustration all at once tore through me, and I openly cursed the room and my lack of focus. My words echoed in the empty space, and seemed to come back at me with more force than they had upon leaving my mouth. The power of it silenced my ranting. The room seemed to darken and the air chilled around me. I broke out in goose flesh, and my breath felt frozen. I let it out, expecting to see it cloud in front of my face, and although it did not, it was of little comfort. I don't know how long I stood there waiting for something to happen. The noises from upstairs broke the spell. The breaking glass was unmistakable in the stillness of the empty house, as were the footfalls that followed. It must have been my own imaginings, but I heard the sound of something being dragged across the wood floor in the kitchen. I crept to the base of the stairs and looked up, but heard nor saw anything amiss. Only the empty hallway above that led to the kitchen. I called out and saw a shadow on the wall freeze in mid-stride. I froze and the seconds seemed to spin out for millennia. Suddenly empowered by what, I cannot say, I shouted up the stairs. Get out! I'm coming up! I have a gun! I didn't, but I saw the shadow on the wall change, and all at once heard more footsteps pounding across the floor above. I ran up the stairs into the hallway, found no one, 
and ran into the living-room only to see the door bang against the wall behind, leaving a perfect hole the size of the knob. I continued to the door and heard the wetness squelch from under my shoe. The oozing trail followed a path from the broken back window to the front door. It shimmered in the sunlight of the open door. I swept up the shards of glass, disposed of them, and laid towels over the stinking mess on the carpet. I think now that perhaps that was my last chance to stop everything before it started. But the pull proved too great. I meant to go to the phone and call the police, but found myself headed back to the basement, ignoring the small voice arguing against it. At the bottom of the stairs I stopped and looked around the room once more, really looked this time, and caught a flash of it. Even with all that had happened, my mind still grabbed hold, desperate to see it, to create it on canvas. And maybe that was the point when I began thinking of it as something alive. I thought once more of my actions as it showed itself to me the first time. I had been moving the easel from the centre of the room and something had drawn my eyes, or my mind, to the image I was now trying so hard to conjure. I moved back to the centre of the room, retracing my steps from where I had initially set up, and looked again. Still nothing showed itself. I looked until doing so disgusted me. I thought back on the process of moving the workspace to the corner when finally I remembered the lamp. I rushed to the lamp, turned it off and backed away. If I had chanted a magical spell, or God had come to show me the face himself, it would have been no clearer. The face I could only remember pieces of before sat in front of me trapped within the wood-grain structure of the walls. Terrible as it was, it was also beautiful, and I knew at once that my life would change from this moment on. No longer would I search, for all the inspiration I would ever need lay within its dark, greedy eyes. Once seen, it could not be unseen. I traced the lines of it with my eyes, meditating on its structure, felt for its three-dimensional shape within the two-dimensional wall. The face, a mask of terrible scars, called out for pity, sorrow, and most of all, obedience. I would like to lie and say the face was simply a random design in the wood. Perhaps even that is so. It is not inconceivable that I am completely crazy. For the sake of all humanity, I dearly hope I am. Some part of me hoped for that even as I traced the image onto canvas. The face held eyes that had been born in a place far from our world, a place so far away our sun could only be seen in periphery. From that point on I was not in control of my actions. Had I been, perhaps I would have tore the panelling from the wall and gone on to other projects. Instead, I looked at it and was drawn inexorably further into the mind behind those eyes. I began to trace the outline onto canvas and fill in the missing shadows to make the face wholly complete. Still, even with all my effort, nothing happened. There was no great revelation and I felt a frustration with my work that did not come only from me, but from outside me, perhaps even from the face itself. Still, even with those feelings it was only a drawing of a face. 
like a thousand others I had made during my thirty-four years, and while it was a bit more real, a bit more there, it was still only a combination of collected lines. I turned away from it exhausted, and began putting the tools of my craft away, when I felt a squeezing sensation on my throat. I looked around in terror, found myself alone, and really began to panic. The pressure continued to build, and was cutting off my ability to breathe. I slashed and tore at my own face, trying to rid it of the hands, even as they lifted my feet from the ground. I saw the blood on my hands from the self-inflicted wounds, and as my vision darkened, I heard a voice, aloud or in my own head, I could not tell which, that brought me back just a bit. It spoke only one word, and after it had spoken the pressure ceased as quickly as it had begun, and dropped me to the ground. I lay on the concrete floor, letting it cool my cheek like a mother's home remedy. I tried to rationalize my feelings. They were confused, harried, and disorganized. But for the first time something tangible rested on my ability. After long thought, eventually, that comforted me. I sat back on my stool and studied the image again. Many times that night I stared at it for vast spans of time, wondering how I could have missed it. Many times I saw not the face, but the terrible and wonderful places it had been. I watched as it walked with legions of followers, each begging simply for a glance into the face he hid behind that black cloak. A chorus of tortured voices rang out across the vast expanse behind him. I felt their need, their adoration. For I wanted more than anything to see his face, to know him, to be by his side when it all came to an end. Nyarlathotep, they chanted. Although the desert barren wasteland they were in was void of features, their cries echoed back, and even as it did, the starved, sun-blasted followers began another in earnest. It seemed all of space was consumed by their chants. I watched and remembered the place as if I had been there before, as if we all had. The thought that arose was that my soul and those of the legions had been around for eons. They had been exalted, tortured, hated and feared. Yet I personally had no prior memory of it. I watched as he led them over a small rise, and even as I saw them follow, I knew he was already gone. I felt the loss they felt. Their cries, as they looked upon the place of their abandonment, changed from one of adoration to one of misery and grief. He had led them to this place only to leave them to wander the waste. Not so he could watch them die, but to watch them go mad. I think I heard him laughing, far off behind the heat haze of the horizon. I pulled my eyes away from the wall, only to have them yanked back by a force I knew was not my own. I watched as the lines on the wall spread to form an enormous grin, one so wide it would split any face that tried to wear it. I staggered back and fell over my stool. Lying on the concrete, I once more looked up at the face, expecting it to jump upon me, and saw it had not moved, nor had it changed. My overworked mind was playing tricks, 
I tried to force myself to believe that. In my last act of free will, I got up, turned, and started towards the stairs. I thought I could make it to the safety and sanity of my front room window. Then the pressure on my throat began again, and with it came the voice. It seemed to come from everywhere. The pressure inside the room seemed to double, then, then treble with the force of it. I found myself wondering if anyone else could hear it, for it seemed so loud that even those on the far side of the sidewalk, or town, or the universe, would hear and go screaming from it, leaving me alone in the world with this misbegotten thing. I continued the work, for I had no alternative. My fear had put me in a state of anxiety akin to what I imagined one trapped within a rolled-over car would feel at the smell of gasoline. I knew I couldn't even hope to grasp the depth of the evil that emanated from the face, and though success and failure seemed to end at the same place, I wanted to breathe a while longer. I spent hours retracing each line, searching for the three-dimensional shape of the thing. Each discovery took hours, and I felt as though I would never finish. The shading was tricky, perhaps the hardest thing I've ever done. Every smudge threatened to destroy the work I had accomplished, leaving me to erase and at least partly begin again. When the last bit of shading was complete, I stepped away from the canvas and inspected the work. Although the entire event had drained me considerably and the fear had not abated, I was excited and proud of the creation. It was dark, menacing, but still. I expected it to come striking out from the shadows, to envelop me in pain without warning. Yet nothing happened. I moved closer, constantly changing the perspective, searching for what was missing. I knew something was supposed to happen upon completion. But the more my eyes searched the surface, the further from complete it felt. I sat upon the stool, staring at the face, but trying to avoid the eyes which seemed to bury themselves in my mind. They had before taken me to a place of desolation, waste and despair. I did not intend to go back. I can't finish it, I thought. These words had no more than skipped across the surface of my brain when I was thrown to the ground, physically thrown and found myself lying on the floor beneath the easel. I looked up at the ceiling of the basement, and stifled a scream. A black swirling shape was poised above, and I saw it was descending toward me. The form was hypnotic. I could not stop looking into the endless blackness. Tortured, twisted shapes swam, moving in and out of the twisted vortex in my mind. Tortured, twisted shapes swam in and out of the moving vortex, and from somewhere inside my mind, I heard their screams. Frightened I was. Only a fool would not be. But I also found I was beyond fear. For, as the blackness swept toward me, I lay still, and allowed it to take me willingly rather than by force. Remembering the savage looks on the faces of those left to wander the waste, I understood resistance would be a futile engagement. I spun away into the blackness, as the swirling mouth of darkness, first grabbed hold tightly, as if expecting a fight, 
then seemed to release me to the winds that it carried within its core. The visions I saw there were unnameable creatures, created from the very ether, and surely long extinct in our world. These things, if they ever existed at all, did so within the mind of a lunatic. I can only say they were part bird, part octopus. They carried bloody, ravaged carcasses in their razor beaks, and although I could name parts and pieces of their bodies, seeing them in their entirety, I could not imagine what type of god had created them, and to what purpose. I watched as it tore hunks from the flesh and strew them about. They never ate the flesh, only tore at it. I looked closely at the unidentifiable carcass, and saw its open eyes still shimmering with life. Not the eyes of a tortured soul, but those of one happy to fulfil their purpose. Not being of a religious mindset, I was nevertheless appalled by the blasphemy. I watched until it finally tore the carcass to pieces, and watched with building horror as it turned its enormous eyes toward me. I tried to back away, but found I had no control over my movements in the spinning whirlwind. It came toward me on tentacle legs, and then burst forward, releasing a garbled cry and a black, viscous liquid that seemed to propel it as it rose toward my face. I screamed, and it felt as though something had grabbed my mind and was trying to pry from it the very core of my sanity. As it came closer, I felt my own death close in, and closed my eyes, waiting for the ripping sound of my flesh as it tore loose. It did not come. I heard nothing, but as it passed by, it slapped me with a vile, putrescent slime. I spun in order to keep it within sight, and watched as it rose above me. It was then I saw the whirling vortex that had held me was gone. Above me, a cloudy purple pool stood as if weightless. The awful monstrosity slashed into it from below, creating no splash or disturbance in the water at all. Watching in wonder, I understood this was no longer my own world, but a dream world. Changes took place without rhyme, reason, or notice. Instantly, the ground solidified below me, but as I pushed off it, I found it did not hold me. Gravity had been altered from our world. With little effort, I was able to propel myself up toward the pool. As I approached, I saw the thing again, now sitting on a throne made from a collection of humanoid skulls. Near the bottom of the throne, huge mandibles, three or four times the size of an average human, rested on the floor of the pool, acting as feet for the enormous throne. The legs were made up of slightly smaller skulls, and this continued all the way up to the top of the backing, each row slightly smaller, until I saw the top was crested with skulls roughly half the size of those of a child. I watched in disbelief and awe as an endless procession of people walk out of the purple murk. They walked, facing straight ahead, and as they approached the being, it slowly opened its maw, allowing entrance. These people no more than entered before it snapped closed. As it opened itself for the next in the line, the grinning skull of the previous victim would tumble out, the look on its face one of gratitude in being selected. I watched for only a minute, for horror struck me as I recognized the third in line as my own mother. No longer did the burns touch her, nor did the tentacles she had carried earlier. 
she stood in line waiting patiently, completely herself, and no longer the monster I had seen at the window. She turned her soft, loving face toward me. None of the others seemed to notice her or the smile that crossed her face as she saw me looking in on her. I could not hear her through the murk, but I watched as she mouthed a question to me. Do you see what you've done? She continued to smile, as if the question was about how beautiful the peonies were this time of year, or how handsome Bob Barker was, and didn't I agree Kennedy might very well be our last great president? Quite simply, it was too much. My mind pulsed and seemed to split upon the question. As I turned away, desperate to find a way out, and found the cloaked figure behind me, his hidden face shot toward me, the speed with which it moved, riffling back the cloak and revealing the face completely for the first time. What I had drawn only scraped the surface of depravity and madness I saw within its eyes. It screamed again, that one word of which I dare not say, into my face. The stinking breath of long-dead worlds clung in my nostrils, threatening to turn my stomach inside out. I stood a moment longer, looking into the face above me with feelings I can only describe as love, admiration, and disgust. It was then he reached out a gnarled hand and touched my face, and for a blessed time, blackness was my only companion. I awoke to the feel of something cold and wet on my face. My eyes glanced toward the ceiling to see if the swirling miasma was still present, but found it gone save for the dripping wetness on the ceiling where it had been. These things combined to steal away my momentary joy upon waking. I had thought for a passing moment, hoped really, if I'm being honest, that it had all been a dream, and with that hope now dead, I looked again at the easel standing in the corner in fear of what I might see. The face was still there, its enraged eyes calling me back to my unfinished work. I had now burned upon my brain that final vision of the man in the cloak screaming at me, mere inches from my own face, and I thought I knew what I had been missing. Hours, days, possibly weeks passed as I sat in the basement trying to pull details from my mind, but the depth of the evil in that face continued to elude me. I worked the details until I could almost see the face I had seen in my visions. I say almost because, looking back, I do not think any amount of toil would capture the ill-tempered lack of compassion it had shown me. I think now my own self-confidence blinded me. I had thought it was the cloak that was missing, that it might be the final piece of the puzzle. But something just out of reach continued to spur me onward toward another unknown detail which would lead to my final destination. I worked myself to exhaustion, and found I could not remember the last time I had eaten. Oddly, the thought didn't bother me much. The work and fear seemed to provide everything I needed, and more at the time. I stood to walk about the room, searching for inspiration, and found my pants, once a snug fit, would no longer stay upon my person. I knew the thing would not allow me to change or go upstairs for a belt, so I removed the pants and gaped at the spindly legs I found holding me up. Ravaged by starvation, unknown spans 
of time and madness. I cackled at the sight of my shrunken legs, and the sound nearly sent me screaming. I did not sound like me, but one of those things from that dream world. I looked down at my legs, no longer laughing, and I wondered what had happened to the rest of me. I glanced back at the canvas, and immediately I felt a smile crossed my lips, as I found the awful thing I had created smiling back. I think it was then that it really took over. Quite simply, what happened to me from then on didn't matter. The only thing that mattered in the world was to finish and bring him through. I looked to the wall from which the face had originally been, and found it nearly gone from there. In its place the wood was smooth, grain lines no longer crossed the path of the face. Somehow, the black pharaoh, as I had come to think of him, had transitioned from the wall to the actual canvas, and now it was inside, pushing out. The canvas bulged, as it tried to break through, and I gasped as I saw it moving beneath the surface, obviously trying to step out from that dream world into my own. I shuddered at the thought, but even as I did, I felt a great pull to finish and bring about a meeting with him. I remembered the visions he had shown, the love for him I felt at seeing his face, and knew I was to be different, for he had chosen me. I began to work again, no longer concerned with what I felt it should look like, but rather what the force I channeled wanted. My hands and instruments swept over the canvas, hesitantly at first, then faster until the very motion seemed to blur before my eyes. I was trapped in the work, a slave to my own imagination and that of the evil thing. My consciousness had very little to do with the process any more. As my body worked, my mind watched the swirling blackness form once more, this time within the canvas myself, and I was once more swept away to a different time and into what could only be another of the worlds he inhabited. I was astounded at the strength I felt. None of the weariness or exhaustion followed me to this place. My heart leapt as I saw him ahead of me, his long cloak dragging behind him as he walked away. I followed until I could feel the burn in my legs and the dry heat of the place cooking my lungs. I knew I wasn't in danger, knew also that my physical body was still sitting upon the stool in my empty basement. But the heat seemed to wring the sweat from my body and the moisture from my mouth, until, regardless of what I knew, I could go no further. Remember the door, a voice boomed from everywhere. I looked up to see the black pharaoh had stopped ahead of me. His back was still turned, and I could only assume it was he who had spoken. His arm raised, and I saw a blackened hand extending from the sleeve, pointing off to our right. I followed to where the hand pointed and saw in amazement a great pyramid. I could not gauge the distance, for the rest of the landscape was as it had been when I first witnessed the pharaoh walking the others into the dry, barren, and featureless waste. But I estimated the temple, for that is what it must be, to be three or four times larger than any on earth. Even Giza, in its enormity, would have looked like a child's toy by comparison. I looked back at him, and once more found I was alone. Fear tore through me, not of being alone, but of never seeing his face again. 
I thought once more of those left here to go mad, and through nothing more than my own will was able to calm myself. I believed he had brought me here for a reason, and somehow he or those he worked for needed me. At least that is what I told myself. That thought gave me some comfort at the time. After a short rest, I walked toward the Great Pyramid. There were times when I thought it was moving away. Times when I woke still walking and swore I had already been here, as if I had been walking in a circle the entire time. The voyage must have lasted days. When I finally reached the base, I collapsed against it and wondered at how cold the stones were. I looked up and realized I could no longer see the top. Although twin suns bore down from each side of the pyramid and no clouds were in sight, the top was not visible. It was simply swallowed by the upper atmosphere. I wondered if it actually rose above this world. I stood, again impressed with my strength despite my trials, and wandered the base for a bit. I felt the structure hovering above like an abusive mate, and desperately tried to find the purpose for my visit here. I found only endless miles of stone. Given its size, it would take days to traverse the base of the monolith. I didn't think I would need to. He had brought me here for a reason. I could feel it, and I doubted very much, at least this time, that it was simply to watch me go mad in the heat. I circled around to the side facing the largest sun, a walk of no more than five miles, at the end of which I rested. I searched the area I could see, and finally saw the door of which he had spoken. I ran to it, and soon found myself in front of it painting, drained but also filled with a joy I cannot describe. It was as if all of my shortcomings had been absolved, and I had surpassed all expectations. I reached for the door, expecting to gain entrance, but found no knob. Further inspection told me more, and my heart began to sink again. The door had no hinges. I knocked and realized it was only painted to look like a door. It was indeed stone like the rest of the structure. My mind wavered, and I staggered at the realization that I may never make it home, or even out of sight of these unforgiving sons. I cried without tears, and realized there was no fluid to spare the indulgence. I stopped, tried to collect my thoughts, and finally beat on the door. I smashed my fist against it without feeling. I watched, my mind detached from the act as blood flew from my hand. It sprayed over the wall, the door, and my own body with each blow, and still I continued to hammer upon it. My rage finally exhausted, I crumbled to the dry earth. My body rebelled and tried to vomit, but nothing came but hoarse groans of pain. I looked up at the door and watched as my blood began to run back up the wall. It collected and began to form a shape. In a matter of minutes, a five-pointed star stood out in the center, and below it, the face, his face, as if my blood had drawn it out and made it visible. As I looked, the cabalistic symbol changed. Designs wound their way around the perimeter, and finally, to the inside of the star, where I watched as an ancient script written in the small letters of a foreign language made their way from corner to corner. Mungui Mungu Na, 
Cthulhu, Malaya, Uga, Nagel, Fatan. I bit my tongue to keep myself from immediately saying what I somehow recognised as a chant, and stifled a scream as the voice once more boomed from the ether. Remember! I looked again at the door, licked my lips, loosened my tongue from the grip of my teeth, already tasting the coppery blood, and slowly spoke the words. Mgui, Mgu, Nav, Kutsulu, Vlaya, Wuka, Nagel, Vatan. Instantly I returned to my basement and stood horrified at what was taking place before me. No longer did I sit on the stool. I faced the wall and watched as my hands, now mere skin and bones, blurred about it. I painted with my own life's blood a crimson representation of the door on the temple with only one difference. Now it was open. Things crawled and slithered about in the darkness behind the open doorway. I was opening a portal into our world. At the realization my hands moved impossibly faster, and still I could not stop them. I looked about the room for something I could use, even as I saw my hands painting the representation of the black pharaoh holding open the door for whatever lay within. The canvas I saw lay in the floor just in front of my feet, the face now gone, and in its place the cabalistic star I had seen on the door. It was only then I realized the pharaoh had deceived me. The canvas had been nothing more than a medium to bring me through, a way to show me how to open the door, so that I may open one on this side and let them through. My blood ran in rivulets from my hands and spread upon the canvas. I saw the blood was organizing and had already formed the elaborate design. The scripts were half complete. Panicked, I did the only thing I could. With all control of my hands now at the mercy of another, I kicked at the canvas, only hoping to move it from its place below my bleeding hands. But it would not budge, and it continued to change. I began to feel the heat from that place and knew the time was almost upon me. The things from the dark would soon come sweeping in and over me in their search to destroy and devour anything good within this world. I continued to kick at it, felt the backing first crack, then break. I stepped upon the canvas, sweeping my feet, blurring out the star and the script. At once my hands dropped to my sides, and the heat from the other world seemed to dissipate. Frozen, I stood and looked down at my hands, as if I had no strength to raise them. Bone showed through white at the tips of my fingers, and twin pools of blood upon the basement floor continued to spread. Even as I stared, the pools joined and turned, and ran impossibly around my feet toward the canvas once more. I realized then that the nightmare was far from over, and would not be until I had destroyed the abomination. I kicked the canvas once more, and this time it did move, sliding across the floor to stop in the far corner. I watched the blood turn and continue to follow it. I ran, knowing I couldn't simply continue to kick the thing around the room. I ran with the last of my strength up the stairs, even as I felt the pressure on my throat once more. It was no longer as strong, nor as close. So I was to make it to the kitchen above. Once there, the pressure ceased. I shambled about the kitchen, looking in vain for my cigarettes, 
and realised I hadn't had a cigarette since going into the basement, and prayed I hadn't taken them down there. I made my way to the living room, and found them lying on the table in front of the window. At once I was seized with a need to sit down and smoke. A voice within me chattered, assuring me I had earned this one, and should stop and just enjoy it. I recognised the voice as that of the black pharaoh, and still I found it impossible not to listen. I felt my body move, outside of my control, to the window that looked out upon my little patch of earth, and wrestled a cigarette from the pack with numb hands, and held the lighter in my hand for a moment. I tried to gain control, but eventually flicked the wheel to light my cigarette. The pain was enormous as the wheel hit the ragged flesh on my fingers. I realise now that pain and the moment of clarity it brought not only saved me, but quite possibly the world as we know it. It drowned out the voice of a pharaoh that had tried to play on my hunger for rest. I immediately threw down the cigarette, I set off to the garage, and within found what I needed to end the nightmare. My hands, now throbbing, were in agony as I carried the heavy can to the top of the stairs. I weighed the risk of going back into the basement and finally just dropped it. I watched the metal cylinder spill its contents as it rolled down the stairs and out of sight. I stood for a moment longer, my eyes watering from the fumes that rose below, until I began to feel heat rising. It was not from the gas, for I had not yet lit the trail that descended the stairs, and I realised those things had once again managed to partially open the door. Acting as quickly as I could, I struck the lighter. The wheel caught a loose flap of skin on my thumb and struck the bone, sending a wave of nausea to the pit of my stomach. I tried again, this time holding down the gas mechanism with the least damaged finger on my left hand, while flipping the wheel with a similar finger on my right. After a few times, after a few tries, finally a flame sparked, only to be nearly put out by a sudden hot wind rising from below. I cupped the flame toward me, protecting it from the steady gust, and knelt to light the gas. At first, I thought it might not catch, as if the things in their wisdom had somehow hexed the fluid itself, when it finally caught and ran down the stairs. I stood watching it go, and heard a whoop sound as it reached the can. At once the heat doubled, and I turned to move, only to find I had been standing in a pool of gas and was now myself ablaze from the knees down. I ran to the floor, all exhaustion temporarily lifted from me, and dove from the front porch into the glass, which I saw was now standing knee-high in the yard. I rolled, looking down at my feet as I did, wondering, even as I burned, how long I had been in there. Eventually I managed to extinguish the fire and lay where I had stopped rolling. I watched the house burn, even as I heard the sirens in the distance. When they arrived, men ran across the yard, hoses in tow, but quickly realised they were too late. They were still there, the house burning like a torch as the ambulance pulled away from the curb. I have not told you this so that you will take pity upon me, nor am I delusional in that I expect you to believe. I only tell you so, that perhaps you will find some way to fulfill my previous request to cover the walls of this room in which I am being held, for I sent his presence again. As I feared, he has found me once more, 
and sit waiting within the concrete structure of the east wall. Please, I implore you to fulfill that request. If not for the sake of the world, then for the sake of my own unstable sanity. This has been a presentation of ShadowcastAudio.com and is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Copy it, share it, pimp it all you want. Just don't try to sell it or change it. We keep this going through you, the listener. For the duration of the Masters of Horror podcast, all who make donations to ShadowcastAudio.com will receive an ebook copy of the Masters of Horror. Just specify which format you would like. In addition, you'll also be entered to win a print version signed by myself, which will be given away at the end of the last episode. The music for the podcast is an original piece done specifically for the Masters of Horror by Christopher Carlson. Find more great selections at ChristopherCarlson.com. Thanks for listening.